0: Um, but here is William Leach in 1861 speaking about it as though any fool should know that this would work better in a vacuum, which makes me lead to believe that there may yet still be something else out there that Leach had learned this from. It could have come to him from any one of those brilliant minds that were operating in the early universities in Scotland at the time. Welcome, AstroTalk UK
1: is a not-for-profit podcast on astronomy, science, and spaceflight. Launched in 2008, it's produced by me, Guru Pia Singh, a writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education, but frankly, it allows me to meet fascinating people doing interesting things. It's primarily for my own education, and I share it as a free educational resource. No ads, no subscriptions, and you don't need to log in. For more, see the About page on astrotalkuk.org. Episode 104 William Leach, the forgotten Scottish rocket pioneer. When it comes to the pioneers of rocketry, tradition has it. It was Tsiolkovsky, Goddard, and Oberth. In this episode... Author Rob Godwin talks about William Leach from Scotland. Leach was writing about the principles of rocket propulsion and space travel in 1861, decades before Tsiolkovsky. Over the last few years, Rob has been researching Leach's story and has published a book, William Leach, Presbyterian Scientist and the Concept of Rocket Space Flight, 1854 to 1864. In this interview, recorded via Zoom, Rob Godwin recalls how he first came across Leach's work and the research activity that eventually led him to uncover this remarkable story. The 19th century publications that Rob refers to are now available online and PDF versions can be downloaded. Links
0: are available on the episode page. Uh, thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me on to talk about this. I um, I was on a business trip to Seattle, Washington. Uh, if I recall, I think it might have been one of those Apollo dinners. I think it might have been to honor Pete Conrad. It, I, I may be wrong about that, but I think Pete had just passed away, and there was a dinner going on out there. And wherever I, whenever I go to places like that, uh, the first thing I do is is Google the nearest used bookshops and then, and then go browsing when I'm trying to kill, t- kill time. And, uh, I went to a used bookshop there and I, and I found this book, which I don't know if you'll be able to see there, but it was called space travel by, uh, Ken Gatland and Anthony Kunish. Well, Gatland was, uh, one of the two principals who reformed the BIS after world war two, uh, in 1946, he'd been running a, a combined interplanetary society thing during the war. So he was like the main candidate for revamping it. And he got together with Arthur Clarke and, and the rest of that gang and got the BAS going again. So, you know, Gatlin's bona fides go back a long way. And I picked that book up for $5 and I was reading it on the plane on the way home. And I didn't even get, I think I've even got it bookmarked here. I didn't even get very far into it. Page 20 of his book. Mm-hmm he writes um, it is indeed surprising to find in a book called half hours in air and sky published by james nisbet in 1899 an accurate definition of rocket theory and then he quotes this notion of using rockets for all of the right reasons and then gatlin concludes when it is considered that even today the principle of rocket motion is constantly being misinterpreted the significance of this short paragraph written so long ago by an unknown author is truly remarkable well i think gatlin's reference to 1899 was certainly what got my attention because you know i had uh, studied and written about all the early pioneers um, and generally tried to study primary sources and i knew that 1899 was a really early date um there are some evidence that Tsiolkovsky had been writing about these things in 1899 but he hadn't published any of them um and so I was sort of very curious then of course there was the German Hermann Ganswit who had been writing perhaps as early as 1880 1881 about reaction engines in space um and I thought well what's going on here I mean did somebody actually translate Ganswit into English or something like that. But, you know, Gatlin didn't have the advantage of Google. <laughs> and uh, so I went and when I got home, I Googled that book that he'd mentioned, Half Hours in Air and Sky. And, and the, the edition that came up on Google was actually dated 1877, which was a huge shock to me. I mean, it was pushing it back, you know, another two decades. So that eliminated Ganschwit. So now I'm thinking, wow. I <laughs> so, Can you explain that
1: feeling? Can you recall how you felt when you discovered this enormous jump in terms of timescale of the earliest then
0: um, writing about uh, rocketry? I was I was really excited Um, and and I was thinking that I have got to find out who wrote this and and because I'm, you know, reasonably uh, capable researcher, I knew some of the tricks, and so what I did was I took a sentence that was a particularly weirdly worded sentence out of the essay and Googled that sentence, and instantly it brought up a book called God's Glory in the Heavens, written by a Canadian, or at least a Scottish Canadian, and that's the first edition of the book right there. Right. And um, the, the, the edition that came up, First thing was, I was stunned because the edition that came up on Google was the third edition, which awesome. I didn't even I didn't even notice that initially. I just went sort of straight to the extract about rockets. Then my next my next shock was, oh, wow, this guy was in Canada. Well, that was kind of fun for me because you know, <laughs> living in Canada and. Um, but then I noticed it said third edition. Um, and I thought, wow. And, of course, the edition of, of, the, the, of, of his actual book that was on Google, I think, was dated 1867, I think, That's which right. put it which put it within two years of Jules Verne. Hmm. Um, so every time every step of this process was incredibly <laughs> sort of eye bulging uh, shock. And uh, uh, so when I went to try and. Dig a little further, I found an advert for the first edition of the book, it dated 1862, and then I was uh, frankly astounded. Um, so I, I went hunting for a copy of the book itself, the first edition, because I wanted to see it with my own eyes. And fortunately, this one was for sale from a book dealer in New Zealand for twenty dollars, mm-hmm. and so I had it shipped here, and I anxiously waited for it to arrive. And then I sat and read it through. And one of the very first things that Leach says in the book was that some of the material in it had been published in good words, which meant nothing to me. Um, So I went looking for that. And it turns out that that was a magazine published in in, uh, Edinburgh uh, in the 1860s. And the the actual volume 1861 volume um, was where the story appeared. And I had to go running out into the countryside here because it wasn't online the first volume wasn't actually scanned and they had it in in this deep archive in the middle of the countryside at Guelph University about 50 miles from me Mm. and I I vividly remember when they brought it out from the stack and I opened it up and I did a little dance (laughs) (laughs) and that's something I, I can really appreciate when you do
1: uh, for somebody who 's uh, like you been involved in space history written about it for such a long time to be able to, able to see something and recognize that this is something that nobody else has appreciated and, and you always wonder, can it be real? can it be possible that everybody else has missed it so far
0: yeah that 's exactly what my feeling was, and of course, I immediately turned to my friends and and colleagues. Um, who I knew were experts on the subject. And that included uh, David Baker at the British Interplanetary Society, um, Frank Winter, who was the uh, curator, a space curator emeritus at the Smithsonian, and um, a guy called Mike Sianconi, who was the chair of the um, American Astronautical Society History Committee, but also the author of a book on pre-Sputnik space writings. Um, so I felt between those three guys, uh, Baker had written The Rocket, which is you know, a fabulous tome about early rocketry, pa- packed with information that you can't really find anywhere else prior to that book coming out. Frank Winter is well regarded as having been one of the world's leading experts on early rocketry and, and continues to write great stuff today. And I knew Michael knew virtually everything about every book that had come out pre-Sputnik. And so I kind of dropped it on them very gingerly and said am I am I misreading this um, and, and all three of them took their time to get back to me um, David and and Frank did some research and said this looks like the real deal um, and then Mike Sanconi came back to me and Mike is um, uh, he's a, a safety officer at NASA um, working on Artemis right now and Mike's in, in, got a very sort of interesting, inherently cautious nature about everything. He's He's got this very incisive way of looking at things. And so, so circumventing my enthusiasm a little bit, he said, how do you know the guy wasn't guessing? And, and, I, and I thought about it. And I was like, yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> you know, um, a bit like Cyrano de Bergerac with his, you know, rockets to the moon. But we kind of knew Cyrano was guessing because he predated Newton, for one thing. So um, Michael kind of threw this challenge at me. You need to go find out who this guy was mm. and, and and see if you can prove if he knew what he was talking about. And I'm very grateful to Michael for that one remark. You know, mm. it was just like, go, go think about this. You know, and so I did. And I guess the, uh, the, the particular piece that um,
1: uh, got you going was the piece entitled A Journey Through Space and that I think was written around about 1860 in good words as you say. So what if you were to read and and I put a link in uh, in the notes here online but you can download that that book now uh, which includes this piece. So these were articles written for the magazines eventually compiled in 1867 in a book. So A Journey Through Space what was the big deal in
0: that? God. Well, I mean, the, the thing that caught everybody's attention, and, and and all kudos to Gatland for having spotted that. Um, and I should also point out a guy called Ron Miller had, had probably read Gatland and, and and or may have spotted it himself. Ron's uh, also an expert on early rocketry. Um, uh, used to run the Bonestell space art archive, um, Ron's written some brilliant books about this. And, and you know, he looked at it and, and Miller actually said, you know, it, this may have actually been written before 1899. So he had seen Gatlin's reference mm-hmm. and, and had had enough knowledge to go, there's something about this that makes me think this is even earlier than 1899. So it's very, very insightful of Ron Miller to say that. Um, but the remark that's in there essentially talks about the rocket being the best mechanism, the best engine, if you will, for powered spaceflight, because it would work better in a vacuum than in the atmosphere. And of course, um, Robert Goddard had postulated these things in the in the twenties and been pilloried for it, um, but most famously by the New York Times. Um, because at the time, a lot of people believed still that, you know, you needed something to push against to make a rocket actually move forward, and, and these people who didn't understand Newton were saying, without an atmosphere for the rocket exhaust to push against, the rocket wouldn't move. Well, Goddard famously, after he was uh, uh, sort of pilloried for this in the New York Times, became a recluse. He, he, he really kind of pulled his, pulled his oars in and when often did much of the rest of his work almost in, in total secrecy and, uh, and undoubtedly set back American rocketry by quite a few years because of that. Um, but here is William Leach in 1861 speaking about it as though any fool should know that this would work better in a vacuum, which makes me lead to believe that there may yet still be something else out there that Leach had learned this from. Could have come to him from any one of those brilliant minds that were operating in the early universities in Scotland at the time um, so i'm I'm sort of still hedging my bets a little bit that he was the first, but as it stands right now, I think he's he still sort of holds that place of primacy and it, the um, the key piece here is this
1: uh, uh, this this first one journey through space, and in that uh, it's quite a remarkable piece See, not only talks about uh, rockets being able to travel uh, in space um, and being able to travel uh, more efficiently in space, just as Goddard found out through practical research, um, but he also goes on. Uh, I mean, I should say that although he's a Presbyterian scientist, um, he's a man of the cloth. Uh, yeah. He is really in all intents and purposes, a scientist, as I would uh, uh, think of uh, somebody with his attributes today. And he's really into astronomy. He's observed, he's got observatories, he's got telescopes. And uh, and in this piece, he writes about <clears throat> things as well as the fact that rockets can work in a vacuum of space. Uh, he talks about uh, and he uses his notion of um in this article, which is quite long, uh, of a comet as a a rocket, as a vehicle to travel through space or rather at least through the solar system initially anyway, and it's travelling from the outer planets in towards the sun, and he talks about uh, the the moons around uh, uh, Neptune and how there are likely to be many more of them than we can see, and it may likely have rings around Neptune. both of these aspects, certainly we know now to be true. He talks about um, the fact that when you get closer to a, bo- a body that you're orbiting, you travel faster. Uh, so Kepler, and Newtonian physics, which would, be, would have been well known by then. So he's very much um, bang on the science. Yeah. Uh, but does he actually, um, like, Tsiolkovsky, like Tsiolkovsky equation, for example, does he produce any quantitative work? Uh, in terms of rocketry
0: during his time, um, I think if you if you don't mind, I'll just step on a little bit of what you just said there, nope, just, to still- clara- <laughs> just to clarify it. Um, one of the first reactions to when I published this was that it, his essay, A Journey Through Space, was a work of science fiction, and it clearly is not. It is a scientific essay, and the idea of using the the comet as a rocket he's not actually saying that a comet operates like a rocket he's not saying that you know the tail is the thrust or the exhaust of a rocket he's clearly not saying that he understood that comets were a sort of vaporous tenuous thing you know you you wouldn't even notice if you flew through its tail he knew that and he writes about that elsewhere Um, what he was suggesting was wouldn't it be nice if we could elevate ourselves above the plane of the ecliptic and look down on the movements of the planets from above and be able to see God's work, you know, as he phrases it, God's glory in the heavens, the motions of the planets and all of its elegance. And so he says, the only way we could do that would be in in a a sort of fantasy environment whereas if we could ride on a comet and it would take us out and we could then see all this mechanical magnificence from above and so he uses the comet as a metaphor he's not suggesting that the comet and rocket have any parallels Um, as far as writing um, equations and that sort of thing i don't know how much, because I'm still discovering his writings as we speak. One of the the challenges that Mike Ciancone threw at me was, you know, how do you know this guy wasn't guessing? And so I went deep down the rabbit hole to try and find out what he was writing about. And as you've pointed out, he was a keen astronomer. He was actually an expert astronomer. He was one of the few people in England and Scotland at the time that was given a, a free subscription to the British Astronomical Society's journal, because he was considered important enough. He was um, working with with John Pringle Nickel, who was one of the top astronomers in Scotland at the time. Um, So he understood astronomy in great depth. Uh, He was keenly interested in the notion of alien life, uh, and lectured on that in great detail. It was one of the main things he lectured on for much of his life. One of the things which I found very early in my research was an a reference in a, I think it might have been in an obituary, mentioning the fact that he had lectured on ballistics. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, okay, that's interesting because that's an entirely different field to astronomy or, or you know, the philosophy of alien life or whatever, mm-hmm. or a divinity and many of the other things. And so I, I spent the last eight years trying to find any references to those lectures on, on ballistics. And Indeed, I found it. I found his lecture, the entire thing, right. um, about three weeks ago. Oh, okay. and, and and oh boy, does he get into it! Okay. I mean, he talks about every con- every conceivable type of projectile you could think of, uh-huh. uh, from the Colt forty five revolver, which he considered an ungentlemanly weapon uh, because it had six <laughs> six bullets in it. Um, to to mortars and howitzers and you name it and, and and he describes them in great detail how they function and again makes reference to the fact that they would function better if you could fire the projectile in a vacuum it would follow a different trajectory to uh, to uh, in the atmosphere so he was extremely well versed on the mathematics of ballistics he was also something of an engineer he studied um, uh, watt of course james watt and the steam engine and so on mm-hmm. and actually invented a new kind of heating system for uh, for his church i think in Monomel, and i think perhaps at one of the dormitories at glasgow um so the guy was a polymath mm-hmm. and, and and ended up speaking publicly about electricity he was corresponding with lord kelvin about electricity um and then he even got into um Essentially, what becomes known as relativity and Einsteinian relativity. Um, he came across a book writ- written uh, in the 1840s, I think, by a German philosopher called Felix Eberty. And Eberti had, had written this short essay about the idea that if you could travel faster than the speed of light, um, and you went out into space and looked back, you would essentially be able to see back in time. And uh, Leach got a hold of a copy of the English edition of Eberty's book Uh and reviewed it for Uh one of the magazines. And I think it was 1849 that he reviewed it. And Leach was virtually, totally dismissive of Eberty's book because he said "Any, any astronomer that knows anything about optics and light knows that this is one of the properties of it. That you, you know, if you went out in space faster than the speed of light, that you'd look back in time. And I was astounded when I read that. I mean, I, I didn't even know about Eberty's book f- first of all, which I went and read. But the notion that Leach was reviewing Eberty's book and saying, "Well, this is old hat. You know, we we all know this," um, I thought that was amazing. Well. Later on, I then found out that Einstein himself wrote a foreword for a later edition of Eberty's book, ah. saying, "Saying, you know, this was sort of like, you know, the, the, something that lit the fire under me." So here we've got Leach looking at the special nature of light and time in 1849, as though, yeah, you know, yeah, we know that already. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was just like you, gobsmacked
1: uh, reading that uh, piece. Um, in the uh, journey through space. He actually says, and I, I was astounded. <laughs> you you dig, dig deeper into his story. This was really new to me because I was just focused on rockets. And he says in, the, in part of there, he says, talking about the rapidity of the speed of light, and he says, uh, it is possible to turn back the hand, the hand, as in the case of a dial of us a star moving away from the earth more rapidly than the light, a person would see the hands gradually move in the reverse order. Yep. And I thought, it's this guy, um, from my point of view, it, this is, he's writing this in uh, 1860. But um, relativity, <laughs> we've gone yep. from astronautics to relativity.
0: Astonishing. And yeah, this was not, this was not the sort of the fundamental notion of, of, you know, relativity that had been, you know, the idea that if you stand on a boat, and the boat's moving down the river and, and the bank is going one way, but you seem to be standing still within the boat. Mm-hmm. You know, that goes back to the 15th century. This was a much more profound understanding of optics and light. Um, and, and you know, he, he, he went further than that too, because, uh, you may have heard of a thing called the great debate, which took part, it took place in the, in the twenties between, um, uh, two eminent scientists, I forget their names now. Um, It'll come to me in a minute. But they were arguing about the size of the universe. And at the time, they still hadn't got the uh, Hubble still hadn't sort of spotted the red shift of the expanding universe. And they were arguing about whether all of the nebula in the sky were, were gas clouds. And and there was an argument, well, if they weren't gas clouds, what were they? Well, they might be other island universes, as they called them, or spiral galaxies. Mm-hmm. and And there was a big argument it was called It was called the great debate and I, I, forgive me for not remembering the names of the two astronomers but um,
1: it was Hoyle and Gold Fred Hoyle and um, no
0: this was earlier than that it was oh. i i, I Is it I honestly say it'll come steady, to the steady state v big bang no no this, oh, this this was this was right. in, this was in the 20s and and mm-hmm. you know it's, i think it's in my book oh Shapley Shapley and, and uh-huh. um, uh, i forget the other one's name but anyway Shapley uh, was Shapley. one of them okay uh, yeah and and they they still weren't convinced that the other nebulae that were being seen were actually potentially as far away as they'd seem to be, uh, you know, another galaxy. And here's Leach back in 1850-something, mm-hmm. basically saying, well, you know, we're, we're pretty sure that, that these other objects in the sky are millions of light years away. And uh, that astounded me because it was like, well, how, why are they still arguing about this 60 years later when this seems to have been sort of settled way back then and and uh this is just another one of those examples of just how far ahead these guys were particularly leech seemingly and, and i found that uh,
1: astonishing and uh i think in throughout your book you highlight so many other um stunning uh conclusions that he uh william beach draws from what I imagined to be a lot less in terms of resource of uh, scientific information that was available to him in his time than of course we have in ours and it's, yeah it 's polymath indeed um, if, um, if I can you mention that he was really interested in <laughs> another aspect of uh, something very topical was this belief in life beyond the earth, extraterrestrial life and he got into quite a lot of debates with um, other individuals who uh, remember one particular case who believed that there can't be any um, life and both sides of the argument were using the attribute that really if you look out there big space a big uh, huge universe we don't see much much life and Nietzsche's argument was that well look it's such a big universe. There's bound to be some life, um, but it was quite topical for his time. Um, yeah, for to be-
0: that that was interesting, uh, Gobier, because um, that argument had been believed to be settled by a guy called Bernard de Fontenelle in the 18th century, and and de Fontenelle's book called the, "On the the plura- Plurality of Worlds" is a terrible word to pronounce. That one <laughs> um, was a brilliant brilliant piece of work for its time he he was running a risk of being burned at the stake virtually for writing the sort of thing that he did but he did it as a fictional conversation between himself in disguise and this beautiful marquisa who who's sort of asking him philosophical questions about the universe and the Pope pu- published the whole thing as this fictional conversation where he gradually leads the the inquisitive lady to understanding the, the na- nature of the universe. And um, it was a brilliantly persuasive sort of tr- uh, treatise about the idea. And most people sort of laid it to rest after De Fontenelle. It was sort of like, well, yeah, the universe is huge. And uh, of course, they had no idea how huge at that time. Um, and, and, and so it sat in sort of limbo for a while until a guy called William Ewell, that's uh, um, uh, a guy who was very highly respected. He's the guy who coined the phrase scientist, if you can believe that. William Ewell um, published an anonymous review of the idea, and and he called his paper on the plurality of worlds or something to that effect. And so it was a deliberate sort of uh, retake of what de Fontenelle had done. But Ewell published it anonymously, which was not uncommon in those days. You You would not put your name on these things and um it hit the magazines in i think 1850 i want to say 52 or something like that mid-50s early 50s and uh and you all made this whole argument that um when you when you sow grain in a field um not all of it sprouts to life and, and, and so it could just as easily be that just because there are millions of stars and millions of planets, as they perceived at the time, um, that just as few of them might actually sprout roots. And it was a nice, nice little sort of metaphor. Um, but he actually made a very interesting and persuasive argument coming from a guy who was um, still clinging to old school philosophy. Um, he was a religious man and sort of driven by Christian Orthodoxy to some extent, but also a very brilliant analyst and a beginning of sort of modern science. And uh, so he published this thing. And Leach was one of the very first, if not the very first, to jump in with a lecture. I think within two weeks of Yule's um, reintroduction of this subject to the to the, to the discussion, uh, Leach showed up at, at uh, the town hall in St. Andrews in Scotland and. Took, took the front role of challenging you and doing it from a position of a very highly educated astronomer who had looked at all of the things that were out there and was struggling himself with understanding how to reconcile that with Christian orthodoxy and so on um, but made a, apparently a very persuasive case and and I subsequently found some extracts of his lectures he that that part that role of the sort of other voice, was then taken from Leach to some extent by a guy called David Brewster, who was one of the world's leading uh, guys on optics. And Brewster and Leach were on a committee together. They knew each other very well. Uh, Leach knew both the Brewster brothers. And Brewster was outraged by Ewell's claims and and wrote a whole book about it which became a bestseller so brewster sort of stole a little little bit of leach's thunder in that respect but i believe Brewster was actually in the room when leach made his speech because brewster was living in st andrews and it wasn't a very big town at the time and he knew leach Uh, i think it's highly unlikely that he wouldn't have shown up for his friend's talk that day leach then went lectured about this for virtually the rest of his life. Uh, in fact, it, indeed, he did for the rest of his life for the next 10 or 15 years. Um, he continued to expand on that and um, in, in included part of that in, in his book, God's Glory in the Heavens, is one, one big book. Do you think that was quite close to him as a topic, as a theme, because of his
1: ecclesiastic connections? He was a...
0: Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, some of his wording that he used to to address the subject is incredibly profound for a man of the cloth. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's basically saying, look, I forget his exact words. It'd be nice if I could just grab it and and read it to you. But it's in my book. Um, Words to the effect of, you know, just because science contradicts the word of scripture, don't assume that the word of scripture can't be explained a different way or something to that effect
1: and he's always uh, reading his uh, uh, book uh, which as I say is available for download uh, God's glory in the heavens it's written in uh, with a lot of terms associated with uh, a man of the church if I may say so and initially I find that quite off-putting but he really brings it together I think he was uh, much more of a scientist I I think I fell It's a problem with me. I kept thinking, is he a scientist or is he a religious, is he a man of faith? And really it's not a a sensible question in his context. Uh, It's a little bit like the uh, debate um, in the early days of uh, light being particles or waves. And you have to be
0: one side or the other. But in reality, it doesn't work like that. It's it's much more. uh, Well, it's part of the reason I called the book Presbyterian Scientist was you know because there was this dichotomy there, and it's quite interesting. One one person I read somewhere made a remark that the title of the book sounded like a Dan Dare story or something. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I but you know I couldn't think of a better way of putting it. You don't necessarily tie together a Victorian man of the cloth with science. I mean, it's not something today that we stop and think, but indeed most of these guys, David Brewster was an exception. He was mm-hmm. he was not. But uh, most of the guys that Leach was hanging around with were studying divinity um, and became ministers or whatever. Um, and, and Leach showed a level of enlightenment, I think, For I mean, for his time. I mean, we're all sort of products of our time. So there are things that, some people might find offensive uh, some of the things today because we're sort of trying to slap 21st century rectitude onto, onto something. It makes no sense, you know. I'm, I'm just hoping that in 100 years from now we're not all going to be pilloried for using gas to heat our houses by our descendants. But you know, it's not a, perhaps a good metaphor. But Leach, you know he he spent a lot of his life trying to educate people. I mean, that was, he was a teacher. He wasn't just a minister. He, right from the very beginning when he was preaching in, in Fife, uh, he would go to great lengths to bring the kids out on road trips and this sort of thing and, and feed them and and teach them stuff about flowers and bees and botany and all this sort of stuff. And then he went on to a, a assortment of, of church committees. Uh, one of which was to, um, try and raise money to help uh women in india get a better education as he as he perceived it you know i mean it sort of has a sort of colonial overtone to it but i mean the idea was we need to tell these people about steam engines and stuff like that um and then when he came to canada he did the same thing i mean he he was uh fighting that and indeed i think that may have been what killed him was that he he met so much um obstruction fighting to try and get uh, uh, equal education for people, uh, different indeed of different faiths. He actually said in one of his things, he said, look, you know, there's no point in us going and building a Presbyterian church in, in you know, Delhi or something, and then forcing people to come to it, um, and, and, and saying, Hey, our clubs better than, you know, the Catholics club next door. He basically said, look, we just go build the church and let them come to us if they want to. And he even argued for secularists and said, you know, if the government's giving money away to do this, we shouldn't stand in the way of the secularists getting some of this money to say what they want to say. Let the Catholics have their piece of the pie. We'll have our piece of the pie. And if we have a reasonable argument to make, people will come to us. And, you know, he got in a lot of trouble for making arguments like that. (laughs) And he's such an enlightened individual.
1: you mentioned he was a teacher and uh, referenced um, Scotland quite a few times. So he's born in uh, Rothsay in, in Scotland and he died in, in Canada. Can you just summarise his life story and why did he end up in Canada?
0: Well, he, he, as you point out, he was born in Rothsey. His, his parents and grandparents had been ministers on, on the Isle of, uh, Isle of Bute. And that's just sort of west of Glasgow. Um, and and when he was old enough, he was sent to Glasgow University. And um, of course, that was famous mostly for the fact that James Watt had come out of there. Uh, and he studied all manner of things, including astronomy. He won notable prizes as a student there. He got his BA and his MA there. Um, one of the things which I haven't proven conclusively, but God knows I tried, was that I'm pretty sure that at one point he was teaching Lord Kelvin, who at the, time, who's at the time, his name was William Thompson. He was a young man. But Lord Kelvin went on to become the most famous scientist of the Victorian era. I'm pretty sure Leach taught him uh, natural philosophy, which is what we call science today, but also astronomy. Um, Leach then was uh, uh, offered a ministership at, uh, it's not the word for it, but he was offered a ministry mm-hmm. at um, uh, the request of, uh, I think, the Earl of Levin, uh, who uh, brought him to Fife, where he uh, took over at the church there in a little village called Monomel. And um, that's where he started to do his science lectures and astronomy lectures. He mm-hmm. married a, a lady from there uh, called um, Euphemia Patterson. And they had a couple of kids. Euphemia died young. and um, Leach then handed his kids over to uh, his sister, I think, or his wife's sister, I forget now, in St. Andrews, and uh, and he was obviously very depressed because you know he'd lost his his wife, and he sat sort of stewing there for about a year, and his friends were worried about him, and uh, and then um, some some people from Kingston, Ontario, here in Canada, Kingston at the time being the capital of Canada, um came over looking for somebody to take over as principal at Queen's University in Kingston. And um, he was nominated by one of his friends, a guy called Norman MacLeod, who was uh, one of Queen Victoria's ministers. Uh, he nominated Leach for the job and uh, Leach discussed it. A lot of his friends were very reluctant to see him leave because he was contributing so much to the community, um, particularly his science writings. Um, but then his other friends were saying, you know, you should, maybe this would be good for you, you know, a new start. So he went and um, he arrived here in Canada in 1860 and um, sort of investigated, so did some groundwork to see whether he was going to like to do this, which he subsequently agreed to. Um, and then he went back and forth between Canada and Scotland every summer for the next two or three years. Um running at his job as principal of Queens while going home to tend to affairs in Scotland with his kids and that sort of thing. And um, then in 1864, he ventured out uh, 1863, ventured out into the wilds of Canada, so to speak, uh, went and visited the Maritimes and uh, probably overworked himself, may have caught pneumonia or something like that and uh, came back and, and succumbed to his illness at the age of forty-nine in uh, eighteen sixty-four. So, uh, short life for a guy like that. Hmm. And
1: uh, you mentioned a few moments ago about the uh, uh, his uh, efforts in trying to get the. Um, uh, this is when he's in Canada and trying to be the, uh, the principal at Queen's University, trying to dish out equally or even or trying to, the income that's coming from the government. And uh, that appears from your book to be the hardest part in his life, just dealing with the politics and yeah. <clears throat> the economics of uh, running a big university.
0: Yeah, you have to remember that the way the taxation worked back then in Scotland and in Canada was a lot different to the way it is today. Um, Because, you know, there was still the crown had more of a sort of claw in there in some respects. Um, In Scotland, he had fought um, to make sure that the taxes that were being collected on behalf of the church actually went to the church, as opposed to being siphoned off to something else that they were not meant for. Um, But so he had some experience with that. But when he came to Canada, Queen's College, as it was at the time, was one of of, uh, a group of colleges scattered around uh, Lower Canada, as it was called. And um, there was no system really in place where the colleges would do the education and the university would then distribute the, the, the doctorates. There was no sort of organization. and He was familiar with the way that that was organized in Britain. And so when he came over here, he said, you know, we should try and and organize this because each college also had a church behind it and in the case of queens it was the presbyterian church that was behind it and then there were these other colleges that had you know, the catholic church behind them and so on and uh so what happened was before leach even arrived supposedly um well this is actually true the, the crown in england had decided to allow a bunch of the king's land which i use the word in you know inverted commas, um, the king's land to be sold off. And uh, the money would then be given to the colleges to grow education in Canada. And um, so a huge chunk of land, which today would be worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, not far from where I'm sitting right now, was then sold off. And uh, the city of Toronto sits on much of that land now. And the money, which was then supposed to have been divvied up between these colleges, um, didn't get divvied up the way it was supposed to. And uh, and Leach took exception to that. Well, actually, before he even got here, Queens took exception to it. Leach kind of got thrown in the deep end and tried to fight their corner. And um, ultimately, he ended up as a senator on the, uh, the Senate of the University of Toronto and earned a lot of respect there. And there was a lot of newspaper articles quoting him here in the local papers from the time. Um, but it was a bad, difficult fight. And to this day, um, you know, there was some, some would argue that Queens and some of the other colleges never really got their piece of that pie. It was it was essentially uh, hogged by what became the University of Toronto. Um, so, you know, yeah. tough fight. And, and it seems to be,
1: uh, he seems to be uh, in a place where, I think quite rightly, he should have been. He understood the value of science and about communicating through his teaching experience, uh, but he just didn't seem to get the kind of support um, that he needed.
0: And yet, he still found time to found the Canadian Botanical Society. <laughs> And he found the time to establish a permanent observatory at Kingston University, or Kingston College. And um, some of his stories, which I relate in, in my book, um, about his trip south of the border during the American Civil War, or just prior to the American Civil War, and uh, uh, you know things that he wrote, which appeared in Scientific American magazine. And your book opens with um, a reminder for
1: those who may not be familiar with the Uh, origins of modern rocketry. Uh, You start off with uh, Jules Verne, Sarkovsky, Goddard, Oberth, but you also include um, the other Herman, Herman Ganswit. Mm -hmm. And um, I was quite pleased to see that. Uh, It's that that name you don't normally see uh, associated with Salkowski and the early pioneers. do you think that uh, uh, Gansweid's name sh- ha- doesn't, has not really achieved the prominence that it should
0: have? Well, I had to put it in there because he did have some precedence. The idea of using rocket, mm. you know, propulsion, or or at least um, uh, the idea of throwing mass behind you. I don't know if he was using solid pellets of fuel. I forget now. I don't think it was, certainly wasn't a liquid rocket. It was some kind of solid rocket. Um, he certainly wrote about that, at least. Um, the research that I was able to find, I dug into the original sources, of course, were Willie Lay uh, and his book uh, rockets and missiles and various iterations of that book. Um, but I, I went and tr- read Ganswit's own writings such as they are that you can find. And, uh, he certainly had, um, some precedence and I, and I felt like I should at least address that because if you're going to start talking about predating Tsiolkovsky, um, there are others. And of course, there's, as I mentioned earlier, Cyrano de Bergerac, but, mm-hmm. you know, Cyrano was writing from a world without Newton and had no idea why rockets would work in space uh, you know, that they might. Um, didn't really have any concept of, of you know, the, the t- idea of the atmosphere ending either. Um, but, but, you know, Gansuit had some understanding of these things and, and had written about them. So I felt including him was important i'm really glad that you did because i think his
1: name gets missed far too often did you come across a guy called nikolai kabalshish
0: yes um and and he was one of the guys who um i want to remember if i've got the right name here now was he the one that was incarcerated by the by the Tsar for being involved with the plot yeah he yes. was involved in the book. Yes. Of I did. II. And I think I write about him in the book. I'm pretty sure I did. The Russian names sometimes confuse me. Oh, uh, um be, uh-huh. because because there was uh, there was another Russian who had written about uh rockets for space flight that Silykovsky claimed as an inspiration. I mentioned him in there and the names confuse me. Yeah. But Kibalchich. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was uh he was writing about um uh, rocket propulsion or or um I can't think of the word for it now. Mass yeah. project, you know. Uh, yeah. Anyway, rocket well, yeah, propulsion. Solid, pr- um, pr- uh, solid. Um, reaction propulsion is the word I was looking for. <laughs> um, yeah, re- reaction engines. He was writing about them from his prison cell because he had been implicated in a plot to kill the czar, oh. and and uh, so he wrote all this stuff down while he was in prison. In I want to say the late nineteenth century. Um, uh, early, yeah, eighteen eighty-one. Yeah, yeah, around really? the time of yeah. Um, and, and, of course, nobody got to read his stuff until long after he was dead. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and you know, after the Russian Revolution, his writings were found and spread around a little bit. Because at that point, of course, the Soviet Union, everybody was looking for primacy and, and you know, saying that, you know, we came up with this first. And the Soviets or the Russians, you know, certainly had a legitimate argument to make for that. You know, Sarkovsky's contributions are, you know, incontestable. <laughs> so, most of the,
1: uh, the four of the people you deal with at the beginning of the book, we introduce the reader to Tsarkovsky, um, Goddard, and Oberth, uh, were not um, Leech's contemporaries, but Jules Verne was. Um, but Jules Verne, he never met him, but he came
0: close. Yeah. Yeah, that was extraordinary. You know, I I don't know what made me go looking for this, but I I suddenly thought, I wonder if Jules Verne ever went to Scotland. (laughs) I had no idea. And, you know, the funny thing is I should have remembered because somewhere on the shelf behind me here, I have Verne's um, biography written by his grandson. And, of course, he talks about it. He talks about Verne going to Scotland in 1859. And uh, and when I went down that particular hole, I, f- I found out that Vern had, had novelized his trip to Scotland in a work of fiction, semi autobiographical work of fiction, but it hadn't been published. And I don't think it was published until 1990 something in English and and 1980 something in French. And uh, it's now considered to have been his first work of fiction. Um, But it was, it was basically him just taking his trip to Scotland and novelizing it. Mm -hmm. And, and it turned out that in, in his papers and his diaries and everything else, it, it pinned down the exact dates that he was in Edinburgh and I happened to know that Leach was in Edinburgh the same day or the day after. I then went and looked at the, uh, locations of where they were in, 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 Scott and Edinburgh that day. And, um, you know, Vern was, was gracious enough to tell us what hotel he was staying in, <laughs> what street it was on uh, and, and Leach, you know, told us what day he was there and who he was meeting with. And, 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 so I put them probably within, you know, perhaps meters of each other mm-hmm. on a given day in 1859, mm. um, which I thought was just astonishing. You know, not, not that it happened so much as that we were able to, <laughs> to know that it happened. Well, I was,
1: I, I was really, uh, I don't know why I was really excited to hear that. I mean, it, in practice it because they never met, it doesn't amount to much, but it, it really is fascinating that they did come so close. Yeah. I remember writing, when I was writing my very first book I was wondering if uh, uh Korolev and um Werner von Braun ever met because right. they were Kroliev came over um just after the war ended just just like uh, many other uh, countries uh, came over to pick the bones of the Russian yeah. the uh, German V2 um, V 2s and the air, air, aircraft and aviation, but as far as i was aware, the although Korolev was in Germany at the same just before von Braun left, they never met either. But yeah, but
0: uh, so. Korolev was there to to witness the British launches of captured V 2s that happened at um, oh, Crookshaven. Well, Crookshaven, that was it. Yeah, Crookshaven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, near the canal there in uh, in northern Germany, yeah. um, and and he he was there, I I believe very discreetly, you know, mm, in sort of right. almost incognito, he'd been given a, a nominal uh, commission in the, in the Red Army or something. Von Braun, on the other hand, you know, yeah. been scuttled off, but he did go back to Germany. Von Braun went back to Germany in 49, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's not generally known about. He was taken back there to be um, uh, interrogated again by British intelligence, mm. um, because they thought he was holding out on them. And so they asked the Americans if they Bring him back, and so he did go back in 49 to sit through another interrogation session. Uh, Just as an aside, uh,
1: probably earlier than that, or could be at the same time, when he came to Europe, he came to England, Von Braun, and he was interrogated, amongst others, by uh, Eric Brown, the uh, RAF pilot who spoke German, and uh, he interrogated so many of the others. And he, Eric Brown, Sent to Germany again to pick over the German technology to see what could be brought back here. But we've spoken quite at length about um, the connections that uh, William Reach had with uh, with the Church and uh, how his writing was um, uh, had a lot of the um, ecclesiastical vocabulary. But despite that, it's pretty much all scientific work that he was working on. But the reason why his work was lost until you discovered it and wrote about him was was it because it was misclassified as um work of um, the church and not science
0: partly i went through uh library databases to see where where the book existed where it actually was located in libraries around the world and um about 50 percent of the time it was in the theology section Mm -hmm. And about 50% of the time it was, it was listed under astronomy. Um, That was an interesting exercise. But I think part of the reason that, that he's, his work was completely disassociated from him and not entirely forgotten, but completely disassociated from him was he died so young Mm -hmm. and his copyright had been used as collateral by his publisher. And um, so when the publisher went out of business, the copyrights were, 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 you know, swapped around like bitcoins. And uh, uh, nobody quite knew who had them. And uh, and so when they started republishing his essay, A Journey Through Space, separately from from the rest of the book, it was never attributed to him. And, it, and it, it remained in print from 1861 until at least 1910, which I thought was fascinating because then that started to put it in the realm of discovery by Goddard. And uh, indeed, when I went further into that, I found out that there was several copies of his essay in libraries in Boston when Robert Goddard was a kid studying in school there. Indeed, there was one copy in the library at the school where Goddard went to school right when Goddard was getting interested in rockets and space flight. And um, that then led me to the fact that, that Leach and Goddard actually shared a correspondent. They both were corresponding at different times with Orson Munn, the editor of Scientific American. And uh, so they were so they were one person separated by correspondence, indeed, at a different time. And uh, and then I found out that A copy of Leach's book was in the library of a guy called Theodore Richards, who was a Nobel Prize winning winning chemist who won his Nobel Prize for his work on hydrogen and oxygen and Goddard knew Theodore Richards. (laughs) And and I have a photograph of them together in 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 the latest edition of my William Leach book. So uh, Theodore Richards had been reading Leach for 30 years because the copy that he has or had, is still in a library in Boston, with the date that he was given it written, inscribed on the inside. Um, and, and so, you know, Richards knew about Leach for at least 30 years when he right. met Goddard. And, and uh, you know, that was really interesting to see just how close they came uh, in several different ways. And I, and I think it's not beyond the realm of reason to think that Goddard probably read Leach's book because it was in the school library where he went to school fascinating those connections, aren't they? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I remember when I was writing my Stephen Smith book and uh, I came across a, a letter in which um, Edward Pendray, the founder of the American Interplanetary Society, was communicating with Phil Cleter founder of the British Interplanetary Society and is saying, oh, I can pass you on details about this guy's testing rockets in India and is saying, OK, I'll send you some details of this guy called Goddard sending, do, doing some experiments, with rockets, very different
0: scenarios. But uh, it's just a unusual. Yeah, event, well, it's great finding this stuff It's like finding buried treasure. <laughs> uh, you know, what <laughs> so gets, gets me up in the morning sometimes is, is looking for stuff like this. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one of the questions that you had Asked me earlier when we were talking earlier was you know what was the reaction to my book when it came out and you know as I said that there were some naysayers who took it upon themselves to make statements about uh, what I was claiming and clearly hadn't read Leech, you know was saying that it was a his book was a work of fiction. Um, or or uh, you know, you know, he was saying that we should go all right on a comet, like it was the horse or something. Um, and, and, and you know, if you actually go and read Leach, and, and I hope you know, read my book, which I hope puts it all in some context and, and gives you an, a narrative to go behind the work, um, you'll find that. There are things that we take for granted, particularly you know, in this field as in any other, that we shouldn't necessarily take for granted. And I've had a huge amount of fun, you know, sort of kicking over the apple cart a few times with this sort of thing. And it upsets people, unfortunately. But, you know, I would rather find the truth of these things than than stick with dogma, which of course is... One of leach's credos, you know, that was one of the things that he he stuck by.
1: Tell me about the impact of uh, the role of Chris Hadfield after you published this
0: <laughs> work. Yeah, well, when I first announced that I'd found this, I was just going to deliver it as a quiet little paper in North Bay, Ontario, which is way north of where I am here uh, for Space Day, and uh, and and Chris happened to be there to uh, to speak about it, uh, to speak about you know his his uh, his flights. And um he saw my little press release about leach and uh I guess tweeted it and because he, he had twenty five million followers at the time. <laughs> and um the next thing I know, you know, the world went bonkers. I mean it was it was on nine thousand different news sites in at least fifteen languages. Um it was in you know, Associated Press, the Daily Mail, the Guardian in England. It, it made the New York Times briefly uh, over here. And then somebody persuaded them to take it down because they said it was all wrong. And uh, I thought it was kind of ironic that the New York Times would fight that <laughs> because they were the ones that took down Goddard. Um, but uh, but they yeah, did apologise at the end, so it'll come. Yeah, they apologised the to Goddard after uh, he was long dead. So, so there's so <laughs> an apology coming <laughs> your way.
1: So, um, so that's the popular reception of the book. Um, what kind of reception have you had within the um, more nerdy environments of the interplanetary uh, or rocketry
0: society world? Um, I was extremely pleased to get a, a great review from uh, british interplanetary society space flight magazine um they gave me a really good review um i started to get <coughs> feedback from some people who i knew that teach this subject um at various you know academic institutions and some of them were phoning me up and saying what you know how come what you know and then saying well i've got to add this to my curriculum and that kind of thing so that's that's been really nice um I was particularly gratified to see that somebody nominated Leach to be on the 50 pound note in England uh, when, when, they, when they were arguing over who to, who to put on it. Admittedly, there was 900 and something other people that were nominated, but Leach was one of them. And I, I think that was, that, you know, I don't think anybody had ever heard of him until I put this, this, uh, this book out. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's been interesting in that respect, but it still hasn't quite permeated the zeitgeist yet. Uh, just recently, I came across a reference. I can't remember what it was. It was on a website somewhere. And, and the person was essentially was clearly writing from no knowledge whatsoever. And, and it was an academic website, too. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that his, his story, a Journey Through Space, was about a trip to the moon. It was a science fiction story about a trip to the moon. And I was like, I have no idea where they could possibly have got that assumption from because it has no bearing on the truth at all. Well, I think it's a, a
1: tremendous uh, effort you put in there to bring this uh, guy out of the, uh, the darkness, for, certainly for me. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned uh, the, you're working on a new edition. What will the new edition contain That uh, that's new and when should be expected?
0: Um, well, the, the most interesting I've, thing I've found, because the reason we're doing a new edition mainly is because it's going to be out of print very shortly. And, um, and so I figure if we're going to print more, we might as well add new stuff to it. Um, the most interesting stuff that I found was all of those uh, writings about ballistics, which I had been looking for for the last eight years. So I'll be adding that stuff in there. Um, since the first edition, I found so much more stuff, you know, I found out about those references that I just made to uh, scientific American and his, um, his connection with that one guy that also knew Goddard. Uh, so I've added that stuff with the photo of Theodore Richards. That's been added to, uh, the, m- the most recent edition. Um, I enjoyed connecting him to his granddaughter as well, who became a world famous golfer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, literally world famous. I mean, she was she was right there on the front page of the newspapers with Charles Lindbergh when he oh. crossed the Atlantic. Uh, she was that famous. Uh, so I thought that was some interesting stuff there. But um, there's a lot of nuance and details and little things, and I've actually restructured the text to, to try and put them into some sort of chronological order. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been, going back to your previous question, um, Strathclyde University in, in Scotland now has a uh, astronautics scholarship named after William Leach, which they give out every year now. And that was, you know, really gratifying to see that. Um, uh, an organization in Scotland tried to get one of the blue plaques put at his place of birth on the Isle of Butte, but didn't yet succeed with that because the committee that organizes that said that he did his most important work in Canada, which is actually not established. He may, may well have written, these essays when he was in Scotland. Um, and then at Queen's University here in Canada, they uh, they put a big brushed steel plaque in the grounds of the university with a picture of Leach and writing about, you know, his contributions to the university, but also his contributions apparently to science. And uh, that's in full view and apparently going to be there for 100 years or more so uh, that's nice it's it's uh been really gratifying to see that and that's down to the time and effort you put into this
1: one last question um as i say i'm so embarrassed that i hadn't come across um william leach and his work until i came across your book and that was a couple of years a few years after your, you published it to what extent do you think um the, the message hasn't got out there is down to the fact that um, uh, you know most people know of, of Apogee Books and the, the tremendous work that you've done in history of space. But do you think if this book was published by, I don't know,
0: uh, Oxford University Press or something, that it would have perhaps got uh, had a higher? Oh, absolutely, no question in my mind. I mean, we're a small publishing house, mm-hmm. and those guys have got much deeper pools to to dip into than we do financially and, you know, with their sort of reputation going back centuries. Um, Certainly, you know, if it had had that kind of academic endorsement at that level, um, it would have have been out there much more so. But we're also dealing in a world now that's a little different than even it was 10 or 15 years ago, where you're trying to overcome the inertia that's embedded in the internet. (laughs) You know, and, and there's so much bad information um and, and, and sad to say part of it propagated by the notion that anybody can rewrite wikipedia um it, it's very hard to to keep over overcoming that it's like a full-time job for a lot of people mm-hmm. to maintain some momentum um i was very pleased to see that somebody had added leech to i think the history of rocketry or something on on wikipedia i, I you know i didn't do that somebody else Put it on there. I could as, e- as easily have done, but I try not to do those kind of, you know, um, self-serving things because it sort of just dis- diminishes the, the impact of what you're trying to say. You know, you need to earn it rather than ram it down people's throats. Um, so you know, it's 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 out there in certain places now. Um, I'd like to see it, you know, hit other other scholars, and so that they would go out and and. Maybe do a better job than me. Um, I, I know that there's at least one highly acclaimed scientist and uh, uh, highly awarded scientist in Scotland who found out about Leach through my book and was invited to give a speech about Leach at some big dinner in Scotland a little while back. So well, good. I mean, I think it's an uh, astonishing achievement,
1: uh, as well as the uh, story about William Leach. The story on how
0: you actually um, brought it out into the open is a fascinating one. Well, Leach takes most of the credit and Mike Cian- Ciancone takes a bunch of it, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I He think needs to, it. I should say. He doesn't take it, but he needs to. <laughs> well,
1: I think uh, uh, you, you deserve a big chunk of that, too. And Thank uh, you.
0: When does uh,
1: um, Edition 4 come out?
0: I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think we have about eight copies left of of uh, the current edition. Right. Um, and you know, once those are once those are gone, right. then I will uh, reprint it and I'll add a little bit more. It'll only be you know a few more pages, probably. Well, um, Rob
1: Goodwin, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate it. It's a very short um, journey through this fascinating story. We'll have to have another chat to catch up with the fourth edition. Thank
0: you, Gobi. Lovely. Thanks very much.
1: Take care, and I'll see you soon.